Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel's expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. I'm nice. You would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Um, today's program is for caregivers, practical tips for coping with your loved one's Merkel cell carcinoma during the holidays. And we're entering this holiday period of time, and so we thought that it would be helpful to you to, for us to kind of address this topic. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other organizations, including MerkelCell.org um, as a resource to all of you as well. Um, and um, we have um, a call today, over 200 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States. Um, we have, um, that means from both all different regions, so from both urban, suburban, and rural areas and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Nepal, Portugal, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. We appreciate your interest in the program today. And today's program is supported by EMD Serrano, and I really want to thank them for their support. And we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Aaron Kent. Dr. Kent is Associate Professor, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, UNC, Department of Health Policy and Management, Gillings School of Public Health, and full member UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Kent is going to be addressing taking on the role of caregiver, what research tells us about caregivers, and long-distance caregivers. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kent. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I am honored to be invited today to Cancer Care and to be speaking with you about the important topic of practical tips for coping with your loved one's Merkel cell carcinoma, um, especially during this time of the holidays. Um, before I begin, I want to indicate that and, and remind you all that I am a researcher um, and professor in the School of Public Health here at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, most of my work has been focused on cancer patient outcomes, including quality of life, the impacts that cancer has had on families, and cancer caregiving. I'm not, however, a clinician, and so I do not have the experience providing direct medical or psychosocial care. My role today instead is to tell you about what research tells us about being an informal or family caregiver for someone with cancer. I will leave more of the specifics of Merkel cell carcinoma and some of the unique aspects that might bring in uh, to caregiving for some of my fellow presenters who will, who will follow me. Um, let me start by saying that a cancer patient survey in 2015 led by Cancer Care found that the impact that cancer can have on family was the number one concern of cancer patients, indicating just how critically important it is that we pay attention to our cancer patients' families in addition to patients themselves. So caregivers of people with cancer may be spouses, they may be partners or children, and they can also include other relatives, friends, neighbors, or coworkers. Caregivers are anyone who help their care recipients or the patient meet day-to-day -day needs, what we often refer to as activities of daily living. These include basic tasks like feeding, dressing, bathing, and moving around and can also include instrumental tasks like shopping, paying bills, and socializing. Tasks that caregivers can help with can also include what we call medical or nursing tasks, 
like administering medication, changing bandages, and helping with medical devices like infusion ports and catheters. Caregivers often help by accompanying their loved ones to medical appointments, communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, and sometimes even advocating for services. Many people might not refer to themselves as caregivers. I realize that this is not a term that resonates at all. It is helpful, however, sometimes for healthcare providers and researchers to use that term to recognize all of the critically important ways in which someone might support a loved one with a serious health problem. So who are caregivers? It is difficult to estimate just how many people are serving in this role at a given time here in the U.S. Um, or worldwide, especially for patients with um, any specific kind of cancer. And that is partly because caregivers are helping care for loved ones with multiple health problems or other chronic conditions. We have a few estimates that we can turn to, however. The National Alliance for Caregiving here in the U.S. conducts a survey of caregivers nationwide once about every five years. And their most recent estimate from a report published in 2015 is that approximately 43.5 million adults in the U.S. are currently serving as a caregiver for a loved one with a serious medical condition. Of those, about 2.8 million reported that they were serving as a caregiver for someone with cancer. Now, this is probably an underestimate of the total cancer burden, given that most people might care for someone with cancer and perhaps another chronic illness, or, or what we might call someone who has multiple serious health problems. So it is safe to say that there are thousands of people right now who fit the role of caregiving for a loved one with cancer and thousands more to come. Uh, Rosalind Carter, former first lady and caregiving champion, has been quoted as saying, there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. We know that there can be many challenging aspects of being a caregiver, particularly for those who are caregiving a large number of hours a week and helping out with several of those activities of daily living I mentioned before. The same study, the National Alliance for Caregiving study that I mentioned earlier, found that care cancer caregivers on average spend about 32 hours a week providing care, which is more than those who are caring for um, care recipients with other health problems. Cancer caregiving tends to be more episodic and intense than caregiving for those with other health conditions. And not everyone reports that they feel like they had a choice in taking on this important responsibility. Obligation and sense of purpose can go hand in hand, and they can be dynamic, of course, but we do know that perceiving having no choice in the matter can lead to some stress and strain. So what that can mean for someone considering becoming a caregiver or stepping into that role for the first time is that taking on this kind of role should be viewed through the lens of, a, of adjustment. So if you're becoming a caregiver, it might be important to take some time to process what is happening and what this might mean for your life and for your, your schedule. Setting and revisiting goals with your loved one is crucial, and caregiving does not have to be, nor should be, a singular endeavor. There are ways to marshal support from additional family members and friends, and there are tools available to help organize requests, tasks, schedules, and expectations. Now more than ever, especially in the, in the setting of feeling any, any degree of obligation, it is the time to activate your village. And it is an important in addition to be able to communicate with the healthcare team that's helping your loved one in navigating this transition into becoming a caregiver. Caregiving for adults of any age of cancer is most often conducted by partners, spouses, or significant others who often face the competing demands of career and child rearing. 
differences in caregivers' well-being have been shown across um, the caregiver-patient relationship. Um, and some research has shown that adult daughters um, have reported the high, higher levels of distress than other relationship types. Um, another study has shown that um, non-spousal caregivers, so caregivers of, of someone who is not their spouse, um, actually reported better mental functioning than other spousal caregivers. So this research is, is demonstrating that there are some differences across relationship types. Um, and further research also suggests that there are gender differences um, in, in spousal caregiving and that women who care for their spouses actually report more distress than men who care for their spouses. Now this is going to vary across um, individuals and across families. It's just to indicate that there are some trends that, um, that we should pay attention to. And there is a need for uh, diverse resources and services. Unfortunately, many resources have been developed and are continuing to be further refined. And cancer care can direct you to resources specific to whatever unmet needs you might have in your situation. The final topic I was asked to address was caregiving at a distance. And this is a topic near and dear to my heart as I'm currently supporting my mother who lives across the country um, and is managing some health problems. So I know all too well how the distance can be challenging in helping us support our loved ones, whatever the health problems they might have. There are many ways to care for a loved one with cancer from afar. Many of these strategies can rely on technology. So tools like uh, what we call video conferencing through platforms like Skype or FaceTime can be really helpful in terms of attending visits or just checking in on a loved one. Taking pictures and texting or emailing them of medicines can help, um, help a loved one answer some questions um, and also just help with monitoring. Setting up supportive services, whether they be sort of formal and, and paid home health or informal, as in arranging with groups of friends or neighbors or um, any kind of peer to provide companionship, bring over meals, and help with house or yard work can be very helpful. There are some digital and online tools to help caregivers organize their, their care um, from near or afar, sites like Caring Bridge and Lots of Helping Hands, where a person can help create a list of tasks and schedules and requests for help, um, email it out to their social network, um, and then allow people in their social network to sign up for tasks, like things like meal delivery, picking up kids from activities, yard work, taking someone to and from an, an appointment, and, and so on. So these sites help organize assistance so that the help is clearly communicated and responded to and also allowing the help to be more efficiently distributed. In our increasingly busy world, this kind of instrumental support can actually be a huge stress reliever, not only for the patient, um, but also for their, their primary caregiver. So if you are at a distance um, and, and serving as a caregiver, perhaps helping support someone that is, um, that is actually nearby and close to your loved one, um, the distance caregiver can help to establish a system like this, and, and, and that can be a, a great help to those who are um, on site. So thank you very much for listening. I'm happy to provide further resources and answer questions as needed. And with that, I will hand it back over to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Kent. That was really wonderful and very informative and also um, very helpful in terms of people thinking about um, just really what the research tells us about caregiving and also the and what really is happening to people as well. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And Dr. Daniels is Clinical Professor of Medicine, Morris UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. Um, and Dr. Daniels is going to be addressing caring for the person with Merkel cell carcinoma, or MCC, 
what, what's new in the treatment of MCC, and helping manage your loved one's treatment, including adherence. And Dr. Daniels is a medical oncologist who specializes in the treatment of skin cancers, including Merkel cell cancer. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Uh, thank you very much, Carolyn, and thank you, uh, Cancer Care, for doing this. And um, I'm going to take my topics and interweave it with um, a little more background on Merkel cell and discuss as we get to the new treatment options, kind of what are the current treatment options and, and what are the new ones. And um, the call was advertised as Merkel cell, so um, I assume people have a, a, some knowledge of Merkel cell on the line. But um, just to recount, it is a unusual or what we even term a rare cancer. Rare cancers in this country we think about are incidents of 10,000 or less. And Merkel cell is approximately two to 3,000 cases in the U.S. Um, annually. And so it is a rare cancer. And that comes with some uh, special considerations for the topics we're talking about today. The causes of Merkel cell um, as we expand for all tumor types and understanding what are the risk factors that we can change and not change about cancers and looking at the root causes uh, that are leading to Merkel cell. Merkel cell is a, a cancer that's increasing in incidence, and so understanding the causes are important. Um, we break Merkel cells into two general classes, those that appear to be UV-driven or ultraviolet light-driven, uh, reflecting kind of one pattern that we see from Merkel cells, which is in the head and neck area, older patients with chronic sun damage, and approximately um, half the Merkel cells, depending on the studies you're looking at, um, obviously the region of the country will change this too, seem to be um, UV-driven. But the other half, um, which happen in a little bit younger group, uh, but can happen in, in elderly people too, are caused by a virus, and actually a unique virus, the Merkel cell polyoma virus. And that appears to be the main driver. And so we, we break the Merkel cells down into these two classes. I alluded to that it, it happens um, as we get older, but it also happens in um, a few other unique groups, those that are immune suppressed for some reason. Um, perhaps they were a transplant patient recipient or they had a bone marrow transplant or some other uh, disease process in their body is uh, leading to a compromised immune system. Because, as we'll get to, these are highly um, immune interactive tumors. One thing about uh, a unique tumor or a rare tumor is the difficulty in diagnosis. And this gets into caring for the person with Merkel cell. And there was a, a great study by Howard Kaufman He's a uh, medical oncologist, and he published this in 2018 after uh, completing one of the first studies looking at an effective immune therapy in Merkel cell. And what they did was they actually phoned patients who were involved in the studies and went through patient-specific issues that may have arised either early with diagnosis or later with treatment for patients. So, you know, I'm just going to touch on it. So anybody interested, I, I highly recommend this um, 2018 uh, article by Howard Kaufman. But what he found um, was that because it's a rare tumor, there were issues right from the beginning where these often painless, benign appearing lesions were discounted um, by the uh, maybe by the patient uh, initially and then maybe by the provider. Um, it just didn't get on people's radars. And that uh, discounting and rarity 
kind of leads to a whole cascade of medical issues such as delayed diagnoses or um, even, you know, one can even lack confidence in the healthcare system that allowed something so aggressive um, to, to manifest itself. And the aggressiveness of the cancer is shocking to patients. So, you know, um, the last speaker um, spoke about Rosalind Carter. That's a great example. Rosalind Carter, of course, um, is a caregiver for our former president, Jimmy Carter, who has melanoma. And parallels to melanoma, it's a skin cancer, it's aggressive. But um, Merkel cell, unlike melanoma, um, there's less information out there, um, but it is equally aggressive. And so a patient's going in with a Merkel cell being told, um, maybe by their physician, I've seen one in my career. Um, I think it's aggressive. Um, so incomplete information um, to start the process with um, has psychological impact, it, um, not just on the patient, but the people that are trying to support the patient. And then we get into the therapies, which I'll talk about, um, you know, chemotherapy, radiation. So these all have impacts. So um, Merkel cell, uh, I'm really happy that... Uh, that cancer care decided to to step into this area because rare tumors are unique in this. Going back to uh, treatments, um, surgical treatment is the initial treatment of choice. Like melanomas, we do wide excisions. We might um, discuss sentinel lymph nodes with the patient because of how these uh, tumors uh, can recur. Uh, we monitor patients. There's some interesting work going on with monitoring patients looking for antibodies against that virus that can cause um, Merkel cell. So there's some blood tests that are in development. You can ask your physician if, if that uh, applies to you. And then uh, on to systemic treatments. And this is uh, touching on the what's new in Merkel cell. So in Merkel cell, as I said, it's a, an immune uh, interactive tumor and what we've seen, or what we used to see, is uh, an aggressive tumor that uh, would respond quickly to chemotherapy, but in a very disappointing way, that response would not hold. And so uh, patients would be treated with cytotoxic chemotherapy. Their tumors would shrink, but only within, unfortunately, a few months on average, um, tumors were coming back. And so in these advanced patients, we've taken a new approach because in 2017, the first immune therapy, Avelumab, was approved in Merkel cell. Um, it's not unique. Um, there are other um, PD-1, PD-L1 blockers, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, that also have activity in this disease. And using these immune therapies, what we see is, again, a very high response rate. This has allowed us to go look at those questions of durability, um, different toxicity profiles, We've moved these immune therapies into what we call neoadjuvant setting. Neoadjuvant means, hey, perhaps before surgery, uh, we should expose the patient to these immune therapies and see if that leads to better outcomes. That's part of uh, clinical trials right now. Can we keep Merkel cell from coming back, just like we've um, shown in melanoma with uh, adjuvant treatments um, with immune therapies in uh, Merkel cell? And, of course, there's a lot of clinical trials going on one challenge, of course, is that it's a, a rare tumor type. And so um, networking, getting the word out um, that uh, Merkel cells have treatment options is important and that um, there are centers that specialize in uh, treating these diseases. Lastly, I'll just touch on um, helping managed uh, loved ones' treatments, including adherence. Well, again, this gets to that um, rare tumor. Um, all of a sudden you're going in, how do you help uh, build the confidence uh, for the patient? 
um, asking lots of questions is very helpful. Um, looking at the resources that are available that Cancer Care will summarize at the end is going to be important. Um, getting that knowledge of this rare tumor type and, and um, taking that responsibility on. Um, there's several issues that will come up in patients uh, with this disease, particularly if they have advanced disease, direct impact of the cancer on how it impacts organs or indirect impact, uh, financial and emotional stress of these tumors and the therapy impact. Um, immune therapies have unique sets of side effects, um, immune-related toxicities. So um, there's a lot of help that uh, patients need, and I appreciate everybody's attention on the call and thank uh, Cancer Care for stepping up to this. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was so informative and really excellent. Uh, really a really wonderful update on the treatment of Merkel cell uh, carcinoma and also just understanding um, just um, all that can be done in terms of the new treatments that are available. So thank you very much. Um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, I'm sure. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Kusak, and Ms. Kusak is Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. Um, and um, Ms. Um, Kusak is going to be addressing discussing shared expectations, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and coping with the stresses of caregiving during the holidays, birthdays, and special occasions with, with kind of self-care tips for all of you to conclude with. So it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Benzner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. And I'd like to also take the opportunity to welcome all the participants who are on the call. It's my pleasure to participate in this conference call. I'll be, as she said, discussing um, shared expectations, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and then coping with the stressors and some of the self-care tips that you can utilize. So when we talk about discussing shared expectations, we want to really think about um, how you can best support the patient. So you'll always be supporting the patient um, to be their best advocate. Open communication is the key to that. So you'll want to have a discussion with the patient about their goals of care and their wishes. You may not always agree with every decision that they make, but remember that this is their journey and you're a big part of it. So ultimately, you want to be able to support them in whatever decisions they decide. Um, you will also want to be there to assist the patient in asking questions about scheduling tests, any side effects of treatment, um, who to reach out to for additional resources, how to navigate the system, and any financial um, assistance if you need to help them with that. And if you don't know what to say when somebody's first diagnosed with Merkel cell cancer or any type of cancer, Cancer Care has a nice fact sheet on what can I say to a newly diagnosed loved one. And here are some of the tips for you from there um, that will help you to be as supportive as possible. The biggest thing is listening. Again, we talk about open communication. It's often a challenge when one of your loved ones faces a life-threatening diagnosis. So you really want to be able to listen without judging and without cheerleading. Your ability to just be able to sit with them and to share those feelings is probably one of the most significant contributions you can make for them. You want to also be able to um, uh, give advice only when asked. So friends and loved ones often take on the task of 
researching the diagnosis and the treatment options or clinical trials that might be out there. And this can be really, really helpful as the information is often overwhelming, um, but you want to make sure that, you know, you provide them with those suggestions and then make sure that they're ready to hear that. You want to educate yourself about cancer and cancer care and other reputable Reputable organizations have um, helpful literature and useful friendly websites for that. You want to, again, support your loved one in their treatment decisions. Um, remember any other caregivers, and as Dr. Kent said, you know, you, there may be some, hopefully several caregivers that are helping out with that, um, usually the spouse or the parent um, of the child or someone will be the initial caregiver, but hopefully everybody is out there to be able to assist with that also. But just asking about things that you can do, such as driving to treatments or arranging medical appointments, um, just providing the emotional support will also help them. You want to stay connected. So cancer treatment can be lengthy, and sometimes patients feel that at the end of the treatment, um, people are not calling as often or different things like that. So just remember that and just try to touch base periodically to make sure that you are um, supporting them in that way. You want to try to keep things as normal as possible. Some, you know, a lot of times we try to make a lot life a lot easier for the person going through cancer by doing things for them. But really, you want to be able to, um, you know, just support them in being able to do uh, the various tasks and things like that. Um, you know, you you also just want to let them know that they can count on you for treatments and. Um, you know, you're going to be able to get through this together. You just have to be able to take the time to um, to be able to do that. Uh, in managing the family members and friends, different things like that, remember to take breaks during the holiday. Remember that the um, uh, have family members visit for shorter periods of time. You will also want to maybe identify foods that the patient likes, and then you can ask somebody else um, to coordinate meal preparation, to send meals over. We just had a, a colleague recently that um, was in a bad car accident, and we were able to coordinate like Grubhub or any one of those types of places where you can you know, just give them a gift card to be able to support the family in that way. Um, Dr. Ken already mentioned a little bit about long-distance caregivers, but again, as a long-distance caregiver, there's lots of things you can do from afar. You can coordinate some of the appointments for the patient. You can be the person that goes on CaringBridge to do the updating if um, you use that website. You can be on the phone during medical appointments to be able to ask questions during the medical appointments. So there's a lot of different um, support things that you can do in terms of helping the patient with that. Um, and then coping during the holidays. Again, holidays and special occasions, we just finished Thanksgiving and we're now coming up on Christmas, and so you just want to think about some of those things that you can do to support the patient. The National Cancer Institute actually is a really good website and has eight tips to cope with cancer during the holidays. And the first one that they talk about is getting in tune with your own thoughts and feelings just to be able to um, support the patient or even for the patient themselves to be in tune and, um, you know, just take time to think about those moments um, that are, you know, a little more joyful for you and things like that. Make sure that you're getting um, support from friends and family. So make a list of family members and friends that you can 
depend on. So if you're starting to feel a little down during the holidays as a caregiver or as a patient, you can tap into that list of friends and, and family members to help you to be able to get through that a little bit. You always want to make sure that you're eating a balanced diet, um, healthy foods. You want to be able to um, uh, ask friends and family to help out. You know, if you're the person that normally cooks Christmas dinner for the whole family and things like that, maybe ask someone else to cook uh, or maybe start some new traditions. You know, maybe have the food brought in for for this Christmas. You know, you know it, it, people don't always have to, um, you know, be that. And you want to maintain as, as much normalcy as possible, but sometimes it's, you know, you you want to be able to, be able to enjoy it. And if you're so tired out because you're cooking everything and you're the person that's primarily taking care of the of your loved one, then sometimes it'll you know make it even more distressing for you. Um, you know, one of the big things that we tell people is, you know, not to blame themselves for whatever is going on. Sometimes things can feel a little out of control when somebody's diagnosed with a with a, um, a life-threatening illness, and so you just want to be able to give yourself a break and, you know, try to be as supportive as possible, but take time for yourself also because you want to be able to be healthy enough for the patient to be able to help them. So some of the things you can do when we talk about self-care um, during stressful times and things like that are doing things like um, scheduling your own self-care time. So one day a week or, you know, one day a week or one day every other week, just really try to schedule time to be able to um, do something for yourself. Go get a massage or even take a walk or just doing exercise or any of those things will help you to be able to just kind of de-stress and wind down a little bit. Um, another activity we tell people is is, is practice um, self-positive comments and so writing down your positive qualities just to you know and you you think about it and you're like well I don't have time to write down my qualities I'm too busy but if you just take 10 minutes in the morning when you wake up and try to either do some meditation or do some self-talk on those kinds of things um, there's a lot of really good apps out there that you can use um, the calm app or um, uh, uh, there's several different apps that you can that you can use to really try to um, just help yourself de-stress in that way. If um, you're a spiritual person, seeking out your local church or pastoral services is a good way to just keep in touch with someone for that. Uh, prioritizing sleep is big so that you can um, keep your energy level up. Uh, we already talked a little bit about CaringBridge and uh, going on that website. And then journaling is also a great activity to be able to participate in um, to, you know, just be able to express your feelings and be able to take the time to do that. Uh, Carolyn's going to be coming on and, and also talking about some other, uh, some other support services that Cancer Care offers for that. The American Cancer Society also offers like a distress checklist and how to cope for um, caregivers. National Cancer Institute has a Caring for the Caregiver site, um, and uh, there's also YouTube videos and CDs out there. So there's a lot of free resources that you can use um, to just, you know, take a little bit of time for yourself to be able to do that. So at this point, I want to thank you for the opportunity to participate in the discussion, and I'd be happy to entertain any questions. And Carolyn, I'll turn it back over to you now.
And um, I want to say a few words about cancer care before we actually um, <clears throat> take questions from the audience. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide uh, oncology social work services to people, and we do that um, through um, a number of different ways. And we're, nas we're national in scope, and our services are free. We do provide practical and financial assistance and a copay foundation as well. So we are good for those type of helps as well. And we also have a staff of oncology social workers who are especially trained to listen to and talk to people uh, dealing with cancers, with Merkel cell cancer, with all cancers. And we provide services over the telephone by calling our 800 number, 800 813-4673, um, or you can um, visit our website at www.cancercare.org, or you may um, contact again our um, 800 number at 800-813-4673. And um, so our social workers are there to take your call, to talk to you, and then can arrange follow-up appointments either by phone or you can join one of our support groups either on the telephone or online. And um, as well as uh, we can um, assist you with um, with uh, other services in terms of just these type of education programs that you can participate in, as well as, um, of course, we have many publications um, and uh, a host of programs that you can participate in. And you can participate in the programs that you wish, so you can choose the ones that best fit your needs, and you can take advantage of all of them or some of them. And also our services are for people of all ages, so from children to teens to young adults to middle-aged persons to older adults, and older adults include a lot of different people, to caregivers, so we have caregiver support groups, um, young adult support groups, um, so really something for everybody, and also cancer-specific types, so skin cancer support groups, support groups of people who have different types of issues that they're coping with. So I hope that gives you a thumbnail sketch of all the different services we can offer at Cancer Care. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Sonia to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Sonia? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask the question, please press star, then one. And we have a question from our online participants, and this one is for Dr. Daniels. Um, so what are the chances of my developing another skin cancer? Yeah, um, great question. So I usually counsel patients there's um, a couple of risks there. Um, that skin cancer could come back. Um, so that would be a, a, the same cancer coming back either in the local spot or spread, and, and each tumor type has its own risk. And then um, some tumor types share risk. And in this case, for Merkel cell, um, it shares, obviously, being on the skin, but um, UV damage, uh, older age, and that gets into uh, number one and number two skin cancers in the U.S. and actually worldwide, and that's basal cells and squamous cells. So Merkel cell patients um, share several risk factors for um, and with uh, patients with other skin cancers like uh, basal cells and squamous cells. So it gets complicated, and um, for melanoma, for Merkel, um, these are cancers that um, get you a, a um, 
lifetime gym membership at the local dermatologist's office um, to be you know, somebody that you can call if you have any concerns or questions about the skin and are doing routine exams. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Um, and um, there's um, another question um, from one of our online participants. Um, so is there someone who I can find to help my mother talk to her doctors during her appointments? I live across country and cannot go due to work obligations and family. I don't want to be um, alone. I don't want her to be alone. Um, she also is a little hard of hearing. Um, so I wonder if um, um, Ms. Kusak and perhaps um, uh, Dr. Kent, you want to address this question. Do you want to start, Ms. Kusak? I think, you know, it's it's really difficult when you're dealing with somebody for long distance and I don't know if your if your mom does have a church or um any kind of organization that she may be um affiliated with that sometimes if you reach out to them or reach out to your local um or even reach out to, you know, if, if I don't know if she's in the hospital, if she's in the hospital you can always reach out to a social worker with that. But if she's not in the hospital there um Maybe some other people that you can reach out to, like I said, in the community, sometimes neighbors and um, different people like that will kick in. You know, sometimes people want to be helpful. They just don't know how to be helpful. So just being able to um, to call on them. But, I'm, again, you could probably, Carolyn, you might even be able to answer this too with um, with cancer care. I don't know if you guys have support services in different cities or whatever you know, across the country um, to be able to do that also with your social work services? Well, we definitely do have um, a whole um, linkage to different organizations throughout the country. Um, and so um, I would definitely encourage um, the person asking this question to call Cancer Care, to call our 800 number, because our staff then would be able to figure out, we'd be able to share with them where your mom lives, and then we could figure out, um, how best to get resources in that community to uh, that might might be available through the Department of Aging, through perhaps another cancer organization that is out there, um, such as um, an organization like uh, Cancer Support Community or American Cancer Society. There are many different organizations out there um, that might be able to provide support as well. And also we might be able to help the person um, think through a bit what um, their options might be in terms of uh, local resources, even a neighbor, um, even actually setting up a conference call. Um, I think uh, as Dr. Kent had suggested, I'm going to ask Dr. Kent if she wants to comment on that, but even setting up a conference call with the doctor when they're meeting with the mom and kind of really then be able to listen and be that other set of ears that the mom really needs. Actually, people need whether they're hard of hearing if not, actually, and really be a part of that um, dialogue with the physician either during the visit or even after the visit, depending on scheduling and things like that, so that the um, the caregiver can really feel a part of the, the long distance caregiver can really feel a part of that whole discussion. And Dr. Kent, do you want to add to that, or shall I just keep going on, or did you want to add to that because I think you've had experience with that yourself? Yeah, I, I thank you, Carolyn. I think that you said it really both both you and George said it really nicely. I think. Um, I mean, there's lots of options. It is, you know, it is hard being far away. I, I completely understand. Um, I think, um, and sometimes adding in that technology component of, like, say, bringing in a phone and sort of listening on speaker can sort of add 
it can be a help, um, but it can also sometimes add a little bit of um, stress for the for the patient. It, it sort of just depends on that situation. Um, I think there's been a lot of really great suggestions here, um, and you know I think that this is this might be a time to sort of you know call upon any um, any connections that uh, your your mother has in town and say you know this is a very specific way that you could be of help you know, once in a while, even just accompanying her to the appointment and taking some notes, um, sort of being a stand-in. Um, but that, you know, the, there are lots of different options, I think, to explore, um, but it's really great that you're thinking about trying to provide um, your mother that kind of um, in-person support. Can and I just and add indeed. A oh, yes. Oh, yes. 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 Thanks, Doug. Yes. Sorry. Um, the other things that I see besides um, those are great. Um, uh, friends and phoning in um, is um, some patients are apt uh, with their phones to record, and um, I'll say that most physicians are pretty comfortable with that nowadays. Um, so it, they just record the whole visit. And um, I also have a group of patients that we always run through everything, and then all of a sudden I say, "Where's the list?" and and um, they mm -hmm. pull out of their pocket the list of uh, questions that have been sent from usually a spouse or uh, or family members. So send a list. Well, that's, a, that's great suggestions. And you just need to just let the doctor know that you'd like to record it so that you can share the, the um, visit with the, with the rest of the family. But that's such a great idea. And, and, and Dr. Daniels is saying to you as a physician that many people do this, that many physicians are comfortable with this. And, this, you know, and, and it's really um, a wonderful way of, um, even for everybody on the call, actually, even if you're with somebody else at the time, it isn't a bad idea to record. It is amazing what we take in. You know, it's said that we only take in a small percentage of what people say. You know? I mean, and if we're very anxious or concerned, we take in even like a tiny percentage. And so I have sat with many people who have taken the advantage of recording their visit and then brought it in. And we've listened to it together, and they said, oh, my goodness, it sounded so different than when I was sitting there. They didn't – so sometimes people only hear one thing, and they get distracted and don't think about the whole – everything that was presented to them. So I think, um, in general, the idea of recording a visit with a doctor is a really good idea. Actually, this is a – wow, this is – Thank you. This is so, and this is teamwork in action. So we're many different disciplines on this call, um, and yet um, we each add – um, you know, that's another thing about the multidisciplinary team or that they actually um, can each bring in different ideas that can really help. And so um, I think um, I think I would encourage you to actually um, – you definitely want to take advantage of the cancer care services and call. It's a free service. You can call, speak to one of our social workers. You already have now a whole bunch of things that you can think about. But you also um, – so you may want to just run it past someone, talk about it some more, and also get some help. Some people also who are long-distance caregivers may join a support group. Um, or talk with um, someone who is running a, a long-distance support group to get some more ideas, just to think through what works for them, you know, just the nuances of their particular person that they're caring for, so all those details. Um, so excellent. Um, and we have another question from one of our long-distance, from one of our, actually, <laughs> one of our, um, actually, um, one of our, um, Online participants, could you address if the patient's health significantly declines during, greatly during the holidays, how to support the patient and family? That's an important question. Sometimes people don't do as well during the holidays. Um, and, um, and then how do you support the person who 
um, both the, the, how do you support the person with Merkel cell and how do you support the rest of the family as well? Um, I'm going to start with that and then I'll, I'll turn it over to some of our other speakers. But I think that um, definitely it's something that you need to kind of then scale back a bit on um, having perhaps people coming over to the home if the person doesn't feel up to having visitors. Although I have seen situations where people really want to see people, so it really is a, a conversation that you need to have with a person. But in terms of your cooking and doing all the work of the holidays, that you definitely want to have friends and neighbors bring the food. You do not want to have to feel responsible for that. And you also may may not have the person the, the person who's Who's, who's ill and not doing well, have, it will limit the amount of time that people are spending with them if they're comfortable with that. And um, Ms. Kusek, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think those are great suggestions, Carolyn. And I think that, you know, again, listening to the patient, making sure what they want is probably the key there to see if they're up to even having people come over at all at that point. You know, sometimes they they don't have enough energy to be able to have visits and things like that. So sometimes you want to limit that to to family and close friends and things like that. You may also want to just make sure that, um, again, the the main priority at that point is keeping the patient comfortable. So making sure that um, whatever, you know, comfort measures you can put in place at that point, I think, um, is the key there and just making sure that they're getting, um, you know, enough rest and that you're getting enough rest to be able to help them. But don't be afraid to ask family to come over and help during that time, too, because you're going to need additional support with that also. And so just having the closest people that, you know, that you're close to that you know that, you know, there's sometimes you can invite people over that, you don't even have to ask them to do anything. They already know that they need to do things. And and so sometimes, you know, just having a couple of those people with you to be able to help you through that time also I think is um, is significant and will help substantially with that. Awesome. Dr. Daniels, do you want to add anything as well? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a real phenomena um, where um, a lot of stuff happens during the holidays because – you know, this is a time where um, we're we're taking stock, and um, there's a lot of emotions around it. So I agree with all that's been said. Um, this is time for discussions. And um, Dr. Kent, do you want anything as well? No. Yeah, I think you all said it really nicely. I think um, you know this is the time to, to prioritize. Um, you know the care of your loved one and the care of yourself, and um, and there's and I think being really honest about that and and finding just small ways to sort of honor that um, by by letting your um, extended set of family and friends know um, is is really the best way. And I guess the other thing is I'm just realizing um, that Dr. Daniels should probably get called periodically, but I imagine that family would want to touch base with the healthcare, the physician treating, um, the treating physician to let them know um, what's going on and see what their thoughts are, um, and um, and perhaps even sometimes in preparation for something to maybe check as well to see, um, you know, if there are any um, any things that can be done to help the person feel better, whether the person needs a to see the physician or be in t- or whether the family need to talk specifically with the physician about what what might be done um does that make yeah. sense to you, Dr. Daniels 
Yeah, you know, it, it's a challenge, um, right? Reaching out and, and actually getting a hold of your physician is always a challenge. I, I appreciate that. I think probably 10%, it feels like, of my clinical communication, though, is with family members um, that call. Uh, maybe they want a summary of um, the clinic note or, or things like that. So you know, I just encourage you to keep reaching out. Your physicians do want to talk to, to you, but... Um, yeah, the channels of communication can be challenging. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, and another question, and this is one for um, to this is one that really comes up in all of our caregiving. I have to say, uh, calls and even on our other calls as well. Um, so, do you have any tips on sharing caregiver responsibilities? Um, my father needs care, and I am burnt out. No one else in my family is offering help. How should I approach my family? So that's a, that's a question that comes up a lot on these programs, and it comes up a lot both also in individual support and counseling to people in which somebody has stepped up and really has done a lot of the caregiving and that there are other people who are not and how to get them to um, to get more involved um, and um, and what to do. So that requires all of our collective wisdom to think about how does one – involve others, um, and so that, that that one doesn't do everything oneself. And indeed, I, I actually will just take a bit of a step with this one as well. Um, that is a kind of thing where you can call um, for help with that in terms of, you know, what do I do? What are some resources I can use? My family doesn't seem to be helping. Are there things that I can get some help with on the short one until I figure out how to get them involved? Um, because most communities do have supportive services, all kinds of things that can be brought in um, to help with some of the day-to-day things that are really wearing one down. Um, but um, Ms. Kusak, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think, you know, again, calling Cancer Care on that to, to ask questions, you know, maybe you can get some social work involvement there. You know, having a family meeting, you know, if I don't know if it's a if it's available within your family to be able to do something like that. Um, but if you can have a family meeting and just sit everybody down and say, you know, I've been doing this for a while and, you know, I need to have some kind of support. Maybe we can divide up some of the responsibilities. And even just having somebody help you work through what those responsibilities are, kind of the day-to-day responsibilities, you know, you can sometimes funnel out some of those things so you don't feel as overwhelmed. The other thing is, depending on what's going on with your patient, um, you know, depending on where they're at in their treatment and different things like that, um, you know, if there's if it's somebody that is nearing hospice or even home care services, depending on what the insurance pays for and stuff. And that's where, where really when you get a social worker involved in that, they can explore some of those opportunities with you to say, are there other services within the community? Are there other services that um, their insurance would cover that you could have brought in to, you know, to even even if it's having somebody to come in to help wash them up in the morning and, you know, do some of those types of things um, can help with that. And, you know, Sometimes it's exploring inpatient services, and, you know, there are times when people don't want to do that. But there's also, you know, you might be able to get some respite care um, services or different things like that. And so there's a lot of different um, avenues that you can explore with trying to get some additional um, get some additional support kind of across the board with that. And it's, it's very, it is very difficult, though. I know it's... Uh, it a lot of times the burden kind of falls on one or two people within a within a family to to do those things, and so we all recognize that. And so, 
you know, whatever we can do to help out with that. Um, I think everybody's willing to to be able to help out with that. So. Excellent. Yep. Yeah, excellent suggestions. And um, um, Dr. Daniels, do you have any thoughts? Um, no. I, I think what's been said is great. Okay. And um, Dr. Kent? Thanks. The only thing I'll add to what was said, which was really comprehensive, was just that sometimes, sometimes there's really big tasks that you need help with um, because, you know, the, the taking care of a person is it can be really um, complex, and sometimes there's also ways to break those big tasks into smaller tasks. And so I think that, you know, getting a friend or an ally or certainly a social worker um, to help kind of make a list of all of the things that need to be done, it can sometimes be revealing about what some of the smaller or, or more incremental tasks that can be taken on. You know, it could be, you know, if there's a, some alleviation in helping care sort of around the person um, versus actually sort of direct um, assistance with, with daily living tasks or, um, or medical nursing tasks. I mean, I think that the feelings of burnout are, are very, very normal. And um, I mean, and being able to sort of self-assess and know that burnout is, is, is creeping in is a huge first step. And so, um, you know, get, getting getting some some bit of respite, and then take, being able to take stock and make a plan for um, getting support along the ways that were already mentioned is a is a really really good idea, and it's good to even have that first step of realizing that that's that that's what you need. Excellent. Gosh, these are wonderful suggestions, and um, again, um, you know, um, there are a lot of options. For, out there, um, and a lot of resources. And although I'm mentioning cancer care, um, when you call us, there are a lot of resources that we would then connect you with in addition. And and we have resources ourselves to help you with it. Um, even resources to help you with just the practical assistance of getting some help that you might have to pay for that we would assist with the cost of that. And we're not the only group that does that. So, um, And there are a lot of organizations out there, um, including Cancer Care, that really will help with some of those hands-on things. Um, if you, It's really hard getting that the other family members to participate. It is. There are times when it appears that there is a person in the family who really is, um, is has a person who's really stepped up to the plate and done all of this, and, the, and sometimes other family members, for whatever reasons, may be able to with some encouragement, um, but if not, there are resources out there to help all of you. So I hope that, and, and particularly to help you. So do give us a call. Um, and um, we have one last question we're going to take today, um, and that question has to do with someone living in rural Kentucky. Um, just find the question. Um, here it is. My mother and I live in rural area in Kentucky. I would like to bring her to a major cancer center for treatment. Is there a way to help with transportation and lodging fees? Um, and I want to come with her. So, um, yes, there are, of course, um, major centers. Often your treating physician in your community can help to connect you to the closest cancer center that would be able to, would be the logical place to go to. Um, and um, I'm going to ask some of our other speakers to address this, and I can come in at another time, but I just that, just that is something that it, there are resources to help with that. Um, and I wonder, if, uh, Ms. Kusak, if you want to start with that. I think there's, you know, depending on the the treatment, I mean, it, it depends on how far you want to travel and things like that. I mean, I, 
I think absolutely asking your physician um, what services are out there. Um, you know, if your family member is interested in a clinical trial or something like that, you can always go on clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V, and um, look up to see if there's clinical trials in your area. Um, depends on the extent of the treatment that they need. You know, if it's Merkel cell or whatever, I'm sure um, uh, my other colleagues can tell you probably more of the centers that specialize in, in Merkel cell. But for, um, in general, you know, you can always go on there for clinical trials. If they've not had previous treatment before and you're just starting out to look for um, some something, you can, you can also go on like um, cancer.gov, which is the NCI website or the ACS website, which is cancer.gov. Org, um, just to look kind of in general around, um, you know, the treatments themselves and stuff. And in terms of centers, probably your physician will know if there's a local cancer center near you where you could take your family member to that um, may be doing, you know, maybe doing a lot of work in Merkel cell. You do, you know, a lot of times you want to go to a more, to a larger um, comprehensive cancer center uh, just to, and there's, again, there's, designated comprehensive cancer centers all over the U.S. And so, um, you know, there's probably some in, you know, in Kentucky that you can go to. I'm not from, as familiar with Kentucky um, overall and stuff, but, um, yeah, that's what I would say. And Dr. Daniels, you want to comment on that in terms of the, um, wanting to feel that they're getting more high-tech care? Are there other ways to do this? Yeah, I mean, I agree for a rare tumor. Um, it would always be good to at least get a second opinion visit. Mm -hmm. And those type of visits um, can be you know, relatively short, um, and it's just transportation uh, to and from is an issue. When you get into therapy, um, surgery obviously has a um, length of stay measured in days to weeks, and radiation can be spanned over a month. And uh, systemic treatments, um, while they might be given every three weeks, um, toxicities need to be managed. So either it's a relationship with a local physician in the um, treating center of expertise or um, you're looking at uh, some relocation. So these are all um, big challenges, and, and I, I agree with um, something like Merkel cell. I would encourage at least one second opinion at a, a major cancer center to just um, make sure that the plan makes sense. A lot of times outside of a clinical trial, the plan can be delivered locally. And um, actually, um, and to add to that, there are a number of what they call hope lodges. The American Cancer Society has them throughout the country where people can stay. and. Um, between all the different cancer organizations out there, including Cancer Care, we help with transportation to get there. Um, sometimes if you are participating in a trial, sometimes once you're accepted to the trial, they do help with various things as well. Um, it depends on the particular trial. Um, and your treating physician may be able to help you with that. Um, there also, I'm going to give you, there's also an 800 number that people find very, very helpful to call um, for the um, National Cancer Institute. It's um it's a great number to actually have. I was going to give it at the end of the call, but I might as well give it to you all now. Um, and we'll give it to you also. You're going to get an evaluation at the end of the today's program, and the evaluation will include um, uh, all sorts of resources we mentioned during the call. And so the National Cancer Institute also has an 800 number. It's 1-800-422-6237. It operates during business hours on West Coast time. Um, it's actually um, and it at Pacific time and actually has um, just um, uh, and you'll you'll get to speak to an information specialist 
and they will actually help to um, to help you with, with some of these kinds of questions of where's the closest center, where can I go, um, and just um, so that's another resource um, in addition to all the others that we'll be providing. Um, and Dr. Kent, do you want to add anything as well? I, I think you covered it really nicely, Carolyn. Okay. Okay. All right. So that um, so that was our last question. I have to say this has been a very robust call. Um, wonderful speakers. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked really such great questions. Um, I want to remind you that this is a one-hour program and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you have many questions that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. So we could stay on the call probably another couple of hours, but we obviously are going to, in due respect to each of your time, um, we're going to wrap this up. Um, but I do want to, I don't want to leave you feeling like that if you if you have more questions, what to do with them. So um, for any medical questions, I do recommend, first of all, your healthcare team. They're a wonderful resource for you to bring your questions to. Even if you asked a question today, or because um, your healthcare team involves so many different people on your team, and so it, they're they're a good team. They're good people to start with in terms of questions, um, even financial concerns. Many people think they can't ask their physicians about healthcare their financial questions, but they can. Um, but any questions they may have, because there are other members of the team that can, then they can bring in on board to work with you. Um, in addition, though, we do recommend for medical questions to call the National Cancer Institute at the 1-800-422-6237 number. And then, actually, for any of the other questions that we discussed during the call today, any of the concerns about coping and dealing with this um, as a caregiver, we definitely recommend that you go ahead and call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or our website, www.cancercare.org. And again, you'll get all that information. But most importantly, um, as we conclude the call today, I, didn't, I don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I know there are times when you do feel alone, but we want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, and we are here to help you. And so that means that there are lots of resources out there. Indeed, there are some places that actually have a 24-hour call center. The American Cancer Society has a 24-hour call center. You'll get information about them as well. So that means any time of the day or night, 365 days a year, you can call them with a question. And you can also call um, our cancer care staff who are here um, on really business hours, Monday through Friday um, on East, East Coast time. And you can call and speak to our social workers here. Um, and you can also um, go to our website and post a question and one of our, for our international participants and one of our staff will get back to you. So for all of you on the call, because we have people both from the U.S., from rural areas and from all different parts of the country and also from international participants, there are resources for all of you to take advantage of. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I do recognize we're entering a, a time of year that may be stressful for many people, whether you celebrate the holidays or not, you're kind of surrounded by this concept of holiday time. And so we also want to be respectful to the fact that um, that it's a time for caregivers that may feel even more stressed out just because workplace, communities, I identify this as, an, as a time of the year. So please do take advantage of this free support that we offer. I want to thank you all again and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.